Good morning and welcome to Saturday morning um, <laughs> at the ASLH meeting, in case you're not quite sure what day it is anymore. Um, we're in Philadelphia and we're at a session called Waiting for People and Money, Strategies for Building Support for House Museums. My name is Max Van Belgoy. I am um, the director of the History Leadership Institute and author uh, uh, and contributor editor of a new book that's just come out. Um, and so uh, we have some flyers here. It's sold out at the bookstore or at the, at the uh, session in the exhibit hall, but we have flyers here if you want to pre-order it. And um, so this morning I wanted to talk about, whoa, what just happened? That was very strange. So this morning we're having a conversation with uh, several different people, and um, let me introduce them to you on the far right. Uh, put your hand up, Donna and Harris, uh, principal of Heritage Consulting. Um, next to her is Alexander Masik, who is director of public programs at the Homestead Museum in California, and next to me is Nina Zanieri, who is the executive director of the Paul Revere Memorial Association, also known as the Paul Revere House, in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, have you figured out any commonalities between them? They're not women. from the same state, not the same age. They're women, yeah, okay, <laughs> all right. Um, they're all contributors to this book we wrote uh, together, uh, but they also come from very different perspectives. So Donna is a consultant working with historic sites and cultural organizations in Main Streets uh, for many years uh, and wrote the chapter on boards. Uh, Alex uh, is from California, it's public programs on staff and in middle management, I would say, can I say that, department head. Uh, has worked with lots of volunteer organizations, including Photo Friends, um, what's the other one, Cemetery, which one? Okay, all right, and a cemetery also working with that. Anyway, lots of interesting things doing with volunteers, wrote the chapter on volunteers, and then Nina is executive director uh, for how long? Many years? Many, many years, de decades, decades, uh, and so I wanted those different perspectives that we talked about this. So uh, we wanted to get to know all of you a little bit better. Uh, first of all, I want to get a sense of the size of your organizations, because we're finding out the size of your organization makes a big difference in the kind of needs you have. So those of you with uh, an annual budget of less than a half a million dollars, you raise your hands. Wow, okay, that's about half the people here, I'd say. Those of you between half a million and five million dollars, okay, that's about the other half. Ooh, there's the, maybe not left in this last category. Over five million. Look around, look around. No one, no one, okay. Um, and then the second thing is, I'm going to ask you a question about what you think your biggest obstacle is. Is it boards, volunteers, or money? So if it's boards, raise your hand. Biggest obstacle? One, three, four, some, I'm not sure, it could be. Uh, volunteers? Anyone have struggling with volunteers obstacle? Oh, volunteers are all great. Okay, you, we don't need you anymore, no. right? Um, <laughs> money? Money? Oh, lots of hands. Okay, that's you. Too bad. <laughs> so, um, this is a conversation uh, with them first. I'll ask them some questions just to talk about this, this topic. 
but we're going to welcome questions for you or observations from you as we go along. That's totally okay. The one thing, this session is going to be recorded and uh, the ASLH is presenting this as a webinar later. So I will stop after you send your question. I'll probably take your question, repeat it, paraphrase it if it's really long or I need to get your help trying to cut it short for people who are listening on the webinar and then we'll pitch it to them. Um, and let's see, if you, uh, I was, so we're going to take questions anytime. If you want to tweet out, you're certainly welcome to do that as you do that um, to ASLH2019. And um, one thing I talked about when we got together a couple weeks ago, because they've never really met each other until today, um, we talked a lot about timing. You know, the session, the theme for this conference is what are we waiting for? But executives often know they need to think about timing. And I found this quotation in the Harvard Business Review uh, from uh, many years ago, a couple decades ago. Inspirational leaders rely heavily on intuition to gauge the appropriate timing and course of their actions. Their ability to collect and interpret soft data helps them know just when and how to act. So, uh, you know, what are we waiting for can often be very complex answer. So I wanted you all to talk about when you think about when you should move ahead and when you should stop, uh, what are you thinking about? What, when you think about timing is the first thing. So I'm going to start with Don, and we'll just go down, mm -hmm. and, then, and then we'll go from there. Okay. I think that the, the whole issue about timing, whether you're going to begin a project, a capital campaign, you know, to rethink the, you know, your historic site and how you're going to uh, uh, fund you know, some, some fundamental change. A lot of it really relies on, I think, the partnership between the board president and the executive director. Yeah, that's a very, very critical partnership in order to make sure that, you know, the executive director is not out far, too far out front and you don't necessarily have the backing of particularly the board president, but the rest of the board. So. As far as looking at really the, the timing of everything, that relationship to me is the most critical aspect of looking at is it the right time? Do I have the right board president? Do I have the right board members sitting on the boards to let me take that leap forward? Um, I think that's a great quote. I really love that idea of, you know, interpreting the soft data. And I think the soft data is something that you need to respond to and, and have conversations about with staff quickly. So I think it's being very observant to what's going on around you, what you see as trends or patterns, and reacting to them, having those conversations, um, and also keeping your needs in mind, um, not continuing with what uh, you've always done, but thinking about how your needs have changed and how the needs of others have changed. Can you talk about what soft data means to you? You, you talk about trends and patterns. Which ones are you looking at? Well, when I, um, when I look at soft data, we, because we have, where I work, a paid staff of 10, and I oversee a work group of about half that staff, we have pretty constant conversation. And so I look at that as soft data mm -hmm. because we talk a lot about and we ask each other questions about what you see, what you hear, um, what's going on with the volunteers. So it's a lot of just communication that feels very natural as a pattern to us. And if someone's absent from a conversation but may have remembered, you know, we've been, this keeps coming up. And that this has come up, you know, 
the last three months in a row, I see that as kind of soft data that, that our, our staff is very aware of that then we can say, this needs to be addressed like now, not next year. I also think some of this happens uh, with yourself. I mean, I think it's really important for you to know um, what your strengths and weaknesses are and what things you can do. So if you can't sit in the room and be honest with yourself about whether it's the right time to take something on, and there's a difference between an opportunity that pops up that you had no preparation for and something that you walked into your institution and said, at some point we're going to need to do X, let me start to put the blocks in place. That makes it a little bit easier than to know that it's time to move. So, I mean, there's a, it's also about seeing an opportunity and saying, and knowing yourself that you can make the case for that and saying, this is an opportunity we can't pass up. This is an opportunity where the little voice in the back of my head says, don't do it. Give an example. Um, for, for us, um, and, and we had an opportunity to buy the building behind us. We had prepared for it. We did it. It's connected to another row house. The opportunity to buy that row house came up too quickly for us now. We had just completed one. And I had to sit down with the board and say, that's an opportunity for the future. We're not ready to do it now. If you feel we need to do it now, I'm not the one who can do it. So same issue, acquiring property, knowing that we need more property, but we weren't ready to do another capital campaign. So it's exact same situation. In one instance, we were ready, let's do it, let's make it happen. The other one, the time wasn't right. But I did say to the board, if you think you need to do it, then I will step aside and let you find someone to do it. Luckily, they said, no, no, that's fine. You can stay. <laughs> um, are any of you doing capital campaigns or contemplating capital campaigns? Oh, a good portion of you are. Oh, good. All right. Yeah. So um, in the book, Nina talks about a capital campaign they did for the Paul Revere House, the first one in its history. Am I right? And what's strange about it, not, I still want you to buy the book, um, don't want to give too much away, but she talked about she did uh, an analysis, she hired a consultant to analyze your sort of conditions and what, what, you know, is your organization ready to do this? Is your, are your donors ready to do the capital campaign? And the answer was, no, you're not so ready. But she made the leap anyway, which sounds crazy. So why did you, why'd you make the leap in that situation? Well, um, it actually wasn't a consultant. It was a friend. Um, so I didn't pay for the information. But I, I sat down with someone, and I said, what do you think? And they said, well, do you have a donor base? And I said, no, not really. And they said, well, have you ever done a capital campaign? And I said, no, not really. And they said, do you think you can raise half the amount in a quiet phase? And I said, no, not really. <laughs> and they said, boy, you're nuts. And I said, no, actually, I am nuts. Um, I said, no, this is something that we have to do. And actually, the organization has been waiting for this opportunity to happen. We actually have some building blocks in place. We had built an endowment, so we had some backing. And I thought, well, 
I can get half of it. I, I can figure out half of the $4 million. And I also thought, well, if not now, when? Mm-hmm. This was the perfect opportunity. We needed the space. The building was right behind us. We could link to it for handicap access. It just felt so right. And, and the board was very enthusiastic, but I will tell you, they did not do much of the fundraising because they didn't know how to do the fundraising because we'd never done it before. So we sort of all learned it together. But part of me says, and I think this is something everyone should think about, there are the rules, and not all the rules apply to your organization. And that's really important. You will have people say to you, the only way you can do X is if you do Y. And you think, well, I can't do Y, but I can do Z, and I think that might get me there just going a different route. So I think it's really important. It's not, you know, it's not that you should not, you know, listen to all the advice and say, uh, I'm smarter than that. You have to know that you're stepping off a, you know, you might be stepping off a precipice. But for us, it really was the right thing to do, and, and, and we raised, we didn't raise two, we raised $4.1 million which for us was a shockingly huge amount. I will tell you, we raised it a nickel at a time. Have either one of you, how do you think about when to make the leap? Do you wait for the stars to align, get your ducks in a row? There's always sayings about when you're ready. I'll I'll, I'll go there. Um, I have two different client groups. I I work with house museums and I work with his... um, downtown revitalization organization, Main Street organizations. And my answer to that is primarily from my Main Street experience. But what I've seen uh, organizations do that have, you know, they've been around for like eight, ten years, you know, substantial organizations that, you know, understand where their money comes from. They, they have good board rotation. They have good, they have good committees that un, and good volunteers that, that understand what their jobs are. And those are the organizations that, when presented with an opportunity, usually a building. Somebody wants to donate a building to them. A building in town um, suddenly goes into tax foreclosure, and they see an opportunity where they can acquire the building and begin to think about uh, that as a revenue-producing opportunity for them, or they can place different kinds of uh, offices above or retailers on the bottom floor. But it really requires that they have a, a, a good board that's responsive, that understands that some opportunities just walk in the door and they have to seize them, and then that, you know, that, is, that are part of a, a broader perspective. I mean, they may, may not be in their strategic plan by a building, but sometimes it's, it's in the strategic plan that they know they want to do something real estate development oriented. So they're going to respond to that. But the, the, the ones that are successful are the ones that have all the infrastructure in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and very similar to that, I would say for us it's a balance of reacting and planning. Being comfortable with reacting when that means an opportunity comes your way that you can't pass up or uh, an opportunity comes your way that you don't really have the rules in place for or the idea of how to manage, but you can quickly get together and 
figure out a starting point to make that happen. So it's still keeping an eye on what you may have in a strategic plan or what you or a work group may be thinking about what you want to do, but also being very comfortable in taking those opportunities and thinking about how you react to those. So I'd like to talk about strategic planning a little bit because people often use that as a structure for making decisions. How many of you in the audience have strategic plans for your organization? Wow, you Yay. are amazing. Yay. Okay, that's highly, just to let you know what the national average is, it's like one third of the organizations have a strategic plan. So you are extraordinary. Hey, Dean. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the question I sort of wanted to pitch to them. You have a strategic plan. Um, that's supposed to guide your thinking, but then you have an opportunity come up. When do you decide to go off the rails, and when do you stick with it? Um, who, wants a, are you, who's, who has strategic plans? Who, who advocates for them? And oh, I, I advocate for them all the time. So I will go first because we do not have a strategic plan. Oh, all right. We, ha we have a plan, though, and we have plans in place that work for us because my organization has had a lot of things going on. We're city-owned, and there have been times when um, that relationship has been really wonderful and fluid. There have been times when it has not. And so um, what we found, actually, in our case, and this is where I think it depends on your organization and where you're at. In our case, having a strategic plan or anything that... Um, motivated us to look strategically for a certain period of time was painful because we couldn't get there. And so we focused on shorter range plans and what we also called either mindsets or areas of focus for periods of time. So they weren't necessarily working towards something that we felt we had the control of at that point in time. But now as we are in a good phase with our city government and we're thinking, you know, we're very excited about the way things are moving, we feel that, yes, now we can actually do that. So I do think it depends on where your organization is, is at. And I appreciate, Dean, the point you said of how many of you actually look at it because I think a lot of times we create these wonderful documents and we don't use them. Or that the person that was the major driver, like the executive director or the board president, the one that was really driving the bus, leaves. And then suddenly you've got the strategic plan that nobody has, nobody really cared about, nobody really invested in emotionally the same way as the executive director, board president, or key board member. And those are the ones that really break my heart because, you know, as a consultant, I, I work with organizations for six months to create these plans. And then, you know, the person ups and leaves, and I realize that this is never going to see the light of day. For us, uh, adding space was always in our plan, and it only took us 30 years to make it happen. So don't, don't despair. But I will say, as soon as we opened the new building, as tired as we all were, because we had finished our plan by opening the building, we held our toes to the fire and did a new plan. And it was, it was tough because we were all worn out. But I didn't want us to be rudderless. I didn't want the board to think, oh, the building's done, you know, finished. Um, I wanted to make sure that we had a sense of how we were going to go forward, how we were going to optimize the new space, how we were going to make sure that the revenue streams continued so that um, uh, opening a building is kind of an, it seems like an ending, but for us it was also the beginning of the institution being quite different, much larger, 
How did we keep the donors who we scrapped so hard to get to make that campaign work? How would we keep them invested in smaller things? You know, they liked the big thing. How do we keep them the smaller thing? Because what I said to the board was, this is what our campaign looked like. Donors, donors. I don't want us to drop from here back down so that the next person has to start down here again. So maintaining those donors is really an active part mm -hmm. of our planning. And it was also to say to the board, just because the building's open, the fundraising hasn't stopped. Mm -hmm. How did you keep your donors engaged after the campaign? Well, we, you know, we learned what they liked. Um, during the campaign, actually, we had an, an instance where we had something, uh, a revered document uh, come up, and we had a short window of time to buy it for a really discount price. And I thought, oh God, why? I'm in a campaign, now I've gotta raise money for this. But I looked at the donors and I said, oh wait a minute, I have this donor here who only gave this little amount to the capital campaign, but I think they might like a collections item, so I wrote, six letters to donors and we raised $50,000 in two weeks and a piece of me said this is how it's supposed to work um, but it also reminded me that when you've got a donor base you've got different people who are interested in different things I mean this is all very simple you're all sitting there saying geez Nina you didn't know that um, but it becomes real when you've got people, actual faces and names attached to it. So we have been asking more. We just learned to ask more. Mm -hmm. So um, Alex and Donna, Alex, you don't have a membership program at your museum. And Donna, you're a consultant. You really don't have members yourself. But what have you observed about how to keep supporters or donors engaged with your institution? For me, um, the, uh, the advice I always give is that if you're not asking all the time, you're missing opportunities. And the, there are plenty, plenty of people that you know, will, will have like a, a, a baseline uh, annual gifts campaign. And um, I, always, I always ask, I said, well, how many other times a year are you asking those people to support special projects, small things, you know, buying a, an object or whatever? And, and I get deer in the headlights. And, I, and, I, and that always makes me sad because I, I think that, like, like uh, Nina found, that there are people that are going to be motivated for very, very specific things that they care about. It could be kids programming. It could be buying trees, it could be, um, you know, some kind of roof project or some, you know, conservation activity. Uh, but if we're not really asking those people on a regular basis to support the organization, you know, even if they're $1,000 annual gifts, you know, you're still missing the opportunity for the $5,000 gift, you know, for a, a small project. Yeah. Um, so I'll, you know, again, echoing a lot of what everyone's saying up here, it's maintaining those relationships and thinking about opportunities. So, um, in thinking about, uh, can I take it to volunteers? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, thinking about uh, your volunteer base, it's 
it's something that you have to see as continually evolving. It's not, we've set up a program, these are the parameters, and this is how we're going to interact with each other. Because over time, as those of you who do have volunteers in your organizations know, volunteering has changed dramatically. And if our organization doesn't change to meet those needs and interests, um, we're not going to have a thriving, vibrant volunteer force. Uh, so it's, again, thinking about how the relationships you have need to change over time based on what people's needs are and what your needs are and being willing to make those changes. Give so not an example. Um, so it, for uh, a great example is um, looking at the structure of volunteers. It used to be very traditionally when a volunteer would come in, these would be the firm expectations. We would like you to give us X number of hours a month. We would like you to come in X number of days per month. And for some volunteers who are really great and really motivated, that's not possible. There are certain times of the year they can't come in at all, and there are other times of the year they can come in every week. Are we going to say, well, our policy says that you should be coming in once a month, and we need to have a conversation about why that's not happening. You can't do that. We can't do that. So we think um, more about also how, as a result of um, volunteer availability and interests in doing certain tasks have changed, what will the staff pick up more of, and what will we have volunteers do more of? So maybe we need to change the balance of, of how we're staffing or what we're staffing for. So keeping it very fluid based on the resources you have and paying attention to what you're hearing from people who are interested maybe in volunteering but aren't. Why? What, what's keeping you? What's that barrier? What do we need to understand about that? Can you give us some, example, can you give us some examples about things that your staff is taking on now because volunteers want to do X? We have a hard time finding volunteer docents who like to work with children. Does that sound familiar? Some of you are like, yes, we do too. Um, so our staff, our work group understands um, that we need to staff some of those programs differently. So maybe we have some newer volunteers who aren't um, docents yet or aren't interested in maybe in that route. So they may help with elements of that program while our staff knows we're going to be doing parts of the program and we'll be scheduled more for that element but we can find a pool of people to help with another element of the same program so that the, the paid staff may not be on for two hours but they're on for an hour so it's sometimes splitting that work um, so that's one example mm -hmm. um, you've talked about supporters I, what I'd like to do is see if there is a relationship between your uh, people, uh, which can be your unpaid staff, volunteers, your own paid staff, your board members, and fundraising. What, what are the connections there that you have seen and noticed? Which leads first, getting the board together, getting your volunteers and unpaid staff together, getting your fundraising plan in order first, and then looking for the right people? What sort of leads in that to, to help you think about when to move ahead? I mean, for us, I think in my soul, I knew I had to be prepared to do a lot of the fundraising. But I will say the thing that turned the board, I mean, they were, the scenario was that we had been putting money into the endowment because we knew a building would come up at some point. And when I, when we had the building, we were ready to buy it, good to go, 
One of the board members said, great, we'll just use the endowment to restore the building. And I said, no. I said, no, 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 wait, wait. And they said, well, that's why we put the money in there. And I said, yes, but um, this is our opportunity to fundraise. And, you know, with that in my brain, I thought, oh, boy, get out your shovel, Nina. You're, you're doing this. But what happened was they were afraid to personally fail. So they didn't want to be the first ones to ask as volunteers. So I needed to have a couple successes so that the board members, and some of them said this to me, they said, you know, okay, I see now that people really will give to this. And so they felt a little more comfortable. I will say a lot of board members said to me, yes, but you know, if I'm at the corporate dinner and I ask the guy from the other bank on my, you know, this side to give, the next corporate dinner, he's going to sit next to me and ask me to give. So I hadn't thought so much about the pressures on board members who are twisting the arms of their pals who then come back and twist their arms. And depending on the size of your community, that can be a real issue. I don't know what the answer to that is, but I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective until I talked to board members. I said, oh, geez, I, you know, I can see why you wouldn't want to go to any dinners anymore. You know, it's like, oh, no, I got to. So I, I do think that boards are afraid of failure. They, they really are, and I think you have to help them see that they can be successful with you. I mean, I think that's really important. Um, I think for, in our case, again, having funding directly from the city, we pay a lot of attention to what the city talks about in terms of its interests and motivations. So the city that I work in is called literally the city of industry. Um, we have a very small population base, but a very large business base. So jobs are very important to the city. So what we've made a case for, and this is so finding something that motivates them and will move us forward, um, and, and is you know very mission-driven, is thinking about ways that we can fund student internships, putting them on a career track. So we're appealing to that interest of the city wanting to provide jobs, wanting to prepare students, you know, for careers, and that is great also for the students, of course, and that it's a paid internship, and it's great for us to have these students coming in and supporting us in ways maybe with those school programs, but with other things that are really a win-win for all, and good PR for the city. Is that a pass? Okay. Yeah. Um, so you raised the issue of uh, a fear of failure. So in all of these things and thinking about when should we act, again, about timing, there's always risk involved. So I, I'd love to talk with you all about risk and when do you, how do you assess risk and is there a downside to not making the leap um, at the same time? Who wants to talk about that? I mean, running a capital campaign without a donor base probably is pretty dumb. Um, anyway, <laughs> risky. We'll say risky. Um, I do think it comes down to being, again, being honest with yourself about what's the hill you want to die on? What do you really have enough passion about to do? And if something comes across that, that you say, meh, or but you think it's really important for your institution, then I do think you have to say, well, I either have to 
make it happen or I have to let somebody else make it happen. Or there are times when you see something and you say, you know what, this is, this is one of any number of things that are going to come along. We can step back from this now. And, you know, you may see five years down the road that that was a big mistake. You should have grabbed that opportunity. You can't know that. You just have to go with the data you have. But I do think that when you're honest with yourself, it's easier to make some of those assessments. And, you know, if you look at your board and you see total deer in the headlights, then sometimes you have to step back and say, well, okay, maybe it's the right thing at the wrong time. Maybe it's the wrong people. Um, We made a major shift to our board right after we agreed to buy the building Mm -hmm. because I knew that there were some people around the table who didn't even understand the risk of having an additional property, let alone what was going to come down the road with that. So we looked and saw we didn't have some of the right players. So So can I ask, like, how did you ask them to resign, or did they just, like, leave voluntarily? Was it quiet? Was it a... A massacre? Well, you know, what was it? <laughs> yeah, it, it actually was <clears throat> quiet. Um, I went to the board. I talked to the, the president of the board, and I said, you know, we really need to slim this board down and make sure that everyone around the table understands. And so we had another board member, the chair of the nominating committee, made a call to everyone and asked them about, whether or not they were interested in continuing on the board or whether they would like to move to a new thing we were calling the council. And they would still be connected. And I will say to a person, the people who needed to move on moved on and the people I needed to stay stayed because the ones who were afraid we would ask them to fundraise went to the council and I didn't need them on the board. Mm -hmm. I needed the ones who really were up to the task. So it worked pretty well. People got to stay with the organization. Um, they were mostly people who were happy. Um, and so it actually worked. We cut. For, we went from 28 to 18. That's, that's a substantial mm-hmm. decrease. But the, the thing about that is that, first of all, you didn't have to make those phone calls. It wouldn't have been appropriate. Correct. 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 And it also was, it wasn't even your board president that made the phone calls. Correct. It was the, it was the chair of the nominating committee. Correct. So that person clearly had to be you know, the, the ultimate supporter, but he offered everybody a very uh, pleasant way out. Yeah. Yeah, um, was the council strategic or was it where we were going to just put people? Um, it was both. I had been thinking about it because I felt that we needed to make that shift on the board even without a building. Um, the building became the impetus for it. So I thought these are, there were people who I really wanted to keep connected and they were all doing something, but they were doing one thing, most of them. 
And I thought, well, this is a great, and I also thought, because we really needed to do some board development as well, that it would be a place to put people who we wanted to move on to the board so that the council could become both directions. And that's really how we're using it now. We've got three or four people on the council who are, we're getting them ready to move up into the board. So it was, it was a nefarious scheme on my part, um, but it also happened to work out to be a, a, a good way to move the deck chairs. And, you know, the people who were moving on for all people I cared about, people I had worked with, um, but we needed them. They, they weren't going to run a capital campaign, that was sure. Can I, can I just ask a follow-up question to you? Um, the, so what do you actually have the council do? How often do they meet, and, and do they do anything that's, like, substantial? That's a good question. Um, in our new plan, activating the council is absolutely one of the things. Uh, for now, they get, um, I do a monthly report as a director, a uh, monthly report that goes to the board so that we don't have to have the board meet monthly, we meet quarterly. Um, and council members get that report. So they're getting inside information um, so they know more about what's going on. But activating council is absolutely something we need to do. And, and, and how will you activate them? Well, we're talking about uh, a couple times a year that we will um, do some kind of event or bring them together around an issue or a question that we need some help with. Um, we haven't completely figured it out. Um, and we don't have someone who's leading the council other than yeah. essentially me, and we might want to rethink that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think other people use, um, uh, some institutions have boards and trustees, some have councils, I think, some have overseers. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's not uncommon no, for correct. that, yeah. um, but we're certainly, you know, we're, we aren't where we need to be with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah, so let me add, the question was about this two-part sort of governing structure, I'll call it that. You have a board of trustees that actually is in charge of the, not in charge of the museum, is responsible for the museum, and then you have this council, which is kind of advisory, um, and then the struggle of who gets onto which one in order to raise funds. Who has a sort of a two-part organization like that? Just yeah, a, a few of, of you, yeah. just a few of you. All right, so let's, who? wants to talk about who has that have you ever worked with organizations that have a two-part yeah I I actually have and the the I have worked with organizations that have both and it, it usually begins like Nina had suggested as a way to keep you know loyal board members who like love the organization but just like they've spent their three years the two terms three years even maybe they went off and they came back on the board, but it's a way to keep those really uh, highly involved, uh, care you know, founder types 
you know, involved with the, with the organization over time. Uh, I've had a couple organizations I've worked with that call it the past board council as a way to at least acknowledge that they were, you know, once board members and they're viewed sort of as the kitchen cabinet for want of a better word, want of a better term. And they're used when they have, like, it could be a difficult personnel problem or it could be, um, you know, a difficult, difficult government problem. You know, maybe they, there's somebody on that, on that past board council that, you know, has got a, a good, you know, line relationship with the, the uh, maybe a new mayor has come in and we suddenly don't know, uh, you know, several council members. And that's how we'll reactivate the past board council to help us create those relationships that, you know, we haven't had or don't have right now. So I've seen them be extraordinarily effective, but it has to be intentional in the sense that you have to give them a job. You just can't say, oh, you know, we'll, we'll activate this when we have a problem. Uh, so, so getting the, the um, you know, the, the executive director's report on a monthly basis is a very good way to keep those people involved at the ver at a very very high level. They don't have they don't choose to come to board me board meetings, although they can. You know, because most of these are they might ha they might be a um, uh, might have a sunset law where they're where they have you know the required like maybe you have a requirement you're a separate nonprofit but you're under the city. So do you, so do you have to have a sunset uh, open meeting? No. no, okay, you don't have to have that. Sometimes I, I work with organizations that, that do that, so that's the perfect time for them to invite past board council members, you know, to come to a board meeting if there's a, a difficult decision that has to be made, you know, in the sunshine. Um, do any of you have a two-part, let me finish this one, on a, have a, a council that works a, particularly effectively, an advisory council, and can give us some advice on that? You do. Um, to, to your question, um, I think it's important to explain or try to help your board or president understand that all of those pools are places where you want to have donors. So they don't all have to sit on the board 
to still be effective donors. And that way you can have some of that diversity on your board, perhaps a younger person who's not able to give at a certain level. So if your, your council, your committees, um, and, and all of those sort of groups of insiders, if you view them as your top lever, level donor pool, then that gives you a little more freedom to save a seat around the board table. And particularly if you've had a major donor who's gone over onto your council or is still staying because they love the collections committee and they'd love to be a part of that or whatever, they're still inside that family. So I would, I would counsel that as a way to maybe save a seat for, you know, we're all trying to have younger boards and diverse boards and we're trying to do all those things. But I think the donor, the donor, you know, the, the, the young donor, unless they're an entrepreneur, isn't going to bring you the million dollar gift. It's articulating to what what the new people on the board's role is, what you hope they're bringing to the board, so that there's an understanding of of just that. So maybe it's connections in the community or connections with other groups that you want to partner with, and why they're such a great asset. Yeah, I was going to say it's often expectations of board members isn't laid out very right. well. I mean, we all. We all assume that people know what board members do, and we invite them on, and then we're, we're puzzled why they things go weird. Because uh -huh. um, no one really explained to them, no, you really don't run the organization. You, you don't run the organization. Yes, yes, you're at the top of the little chart that we developed, <laughs> but that doesn't mean you can go in my office and use my phone and look through my files. So how do we get around that? I, I, I'm a big believer in like a board contract or a board expectation list that everybody signs every year. And it, it's, it, the top part is what your board expectations are, how many meetings they have to go to as per the bylaws, uh, you know, when, when you get to throw them off if they don't meet those meeting requirements or, you know, whatever the term is you use in your bylaws. But it also, uh, if you have a give or get requirement, everybody knows what that is? Okay. Uh, if you, you know, that, that's laid out right there. Um, and, you know, if there's a, uh, how many of you have a minimum expectation of a board gift? Okay, oh, yeah. that should be on that list too. So that it's very clear and that um, you give that to somebody before they're nominated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I also suggest giving them, you know, the financial statement before they're nominated so that they can see the actual financial picture of the organization, it shouldn't be a secret. I mean, they can also look up your 990 if they're, mo they're motivated that way anyway. But I think that the transparency about uh, inviting somebody into the, the inner sanctum, uh, you, 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 the, the more transparent, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I just wanted him writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, do you do that with volunteers, Alex? Contracts, or how do you manage expectations? Um, our contract has become a lot less formal. Where we are most formal comes down to um, safety and security, where we have formal training that has to take place every year. If that's not completed by a certain point in time and we can't make arrangements to make it happen, then they can't volunteer. So that is the most formal. We have regular conversations with volunteers about what they're able to give, what they're interested in giving, what other things they might want to do. So we do that at least um, annually with our volunteers. Hmm. All right. There was a question from Marta. I was just going to add, um, just on yeah, the board. Board here, that we, we had the same structure with um, committees, and those committees really bring in uh, 
um, technical experts in the area, which really worked well. And then that served as kind of a, a training ground for the board. Mm -hmm. And at a point in time where we were needing to fundraise very quickly for an opportunity to clean up, mm -hmm. um, we also established a council. So people who had the ability to open doors or make larger gifts went on to the council. We had the board and then committees. And so that worked because we had all three mm -hmm. kind of strata that mm -hmm. you could pull from and work with. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, let's see, there's a question here. So just to the extent of volunteer point, do you, do you see, like you said, that you're like lower in as far as like the time, not time commitment, but a little bit looser. Do you actively post and seek out volunteers and see it more as a job description almost? Or is it them coming to you with their interests or a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, repeat the question. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the question... The question is, how do we advertise what it is that we need in terms of um, positions, but also requirements, right? And is it is it that they're coming based on that, or is it that they're just coming in and then we base it on the individual and find a spot? Yeah, it, it really is a mix. It really is a mix. What we are doing is we are tightening our message, our regular a regular plea has always been a very general plea, and we, we have definitely put in that we're really eager to have docents, but we definitely add the flexibility. We're saying less about it and trying to make it, um, we're appealing more to the individual who wants to work with people, who, uh, you know, we're, we, we really just said, what is it that we need? We need people who like people, who want to <laughs> engage and talk to people. How do we most excitingly and succinctly say that? So we, we're trying to go to like a two, three sentence plea and using a lot of visuals to help, um, you know, engage. And on a smaller card, we went from like a flyer like this to a half size like glossy card. And we're posting things online as well. So we're really trying to, to be thoughtful about um, our messaging in terms of what it is we need, but as people come in too, who maybe just come for a program, or, or maybe they have hours, or you know that they need for, for school, um, we definitely look to see if we're a right fit and what might work. So yeah, it's a mix. Can you give some, I'm intrigued by this, um, can you give some examples of what these platitudinal responsibilities look like so other people can go, oh, okay, yeah, we do that, um, and what you're shifting towards? So. Well, the, the focus, I'd say the focus of this is, is more around 
So you're being much more clear about the expectations. Yeah. 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 And they're measurable. And that's for each trustee, each board member, yeah, or is it for all of them? Our October meeting, we're going to give them the in, introduce the idea, give them the statement. They'll have until the December meeting to fill it out, come back, and make an affirmation of, of that as, as an expenditure. Oh, very interesting. Mm -hmm. huh. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'd love to know. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, uh, it, it, about 20. 20 board members. All right. And where are you in case we want to read about you in the paper? Uh, <laughs> Okay. Oh, Tudor Place. All right, that's close to me. All right. Uh, I'll be watching in the post. Is anyone else doing something like this or seen anything like this? I, I just want to say I, I love that because, I, I mean, too. I think so often the things that refer to board are cast in a negative way, like the old get on, give and get off and, you know, all these things. But that is so positive. I, I really and, and I do think that the focus on someone who's a doer who's a major doer in a way that's really important to you may trump mm -hmm. those other things mm -hmm. because that that thing that they do is so important whether it's you know related to uh we had a person who was a horticulturist who could could cover a lot of things probably saved us a lot of money um but couldn't really be a donor in a major way or a door opener because they weren't in in the city but i i'd love that that's we're all going to steal that from you yeah And I think the point there too is is just value, and um, taking that to volunteers. You know, there've often been discussions: Do you recognize volunteers for hours of service or for years of service? You know, which one is more important? Which one means more? And we do both. Yeah. You know, so because they're both valuable, and so it is that. Yeah. Yeah.
What do you others think about this strategy? Would it work for your place or not? In the back and then over there. Yes. There's another observation here. Yeah. I just was concerned about when you said board. So it shouldn't actually have board members coming in unless they're going to be doing your work. So when you say board, what kind of activities are you expecting to have? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, some of it's going to be some of it's going to be around committee service because uh, the things that are defined, we've got five five committees. Some of it's built around committee service. Um, things like making thank you phone calls to donors, um, signing notes on annual fund mm -hmm. contributions requests that go out, or um, we have an annual garden party that's a big fundraiser, and so please come in and, and send paper. We, we send thank you notes out afterward, and we have people write notes on the invitation that can go out with the invitation. So those are some of the doer things. Again, a lot of More hands in the back and in there.
Oh, this is intriguing. Wow. Okay. There was a hand back there. And then. I mean, I, to, to, to you, I, I thank you for knowing what works in your particular organization. I think that is, it's so important. It, it's, you know, there's all kinds of options. There's all kinds of right ways to do it. And you have to know what works in your organization at that moment in time. Because if you try to push a structure down on it, and it's not the culture or the dynamic or the community or whatever, you're gonna be pushing and nothing's gonna happen. So I think it's really important that we all sort of, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you, know, you know in your organization what's the most important thing to achieve and how do you, how do you get there? So I, I congratulate you for knowing, because once you stop pushing against something that's not gonna work, you start to have success the other way, so.
interesting. Mm. Wow. Good, good. Um, I served on a board once where the, the expectation in the in the expectation document that we signed when we agreed to be nominated um, is that each board member will give in a way that is significant to them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hearing about like five and six figure gifts. I'm like, I will give you a low three figure gift, but I will give you a lot of time. And as an example of that, I serve currently on ASLH's council, and when I came on council, they said, we ask that we be one of your top three. So no dollar limit set, but that in your, in your individual circumstance, it's one of the top three. More questions here. Observation. Uh, one thing I've noticed working in the field as a consultant is that the field has developed standards and best practices. We like that. Uh, it gives us sort of a, a baseline to work from, but that often those standards have been designed for and by large institutions. Mm -hmm. And so for smaller institutions, it's very hard to meet them. They almost seem impossible, mm -hmm. or in some cases might be entirely inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So I work with historic sites, house museums, and often they're trying to reach environmental controls 
for their house, which are actually damaging to the building. Um, so I think the field is coming up to a point where they're rethinking standards and best practices. I don't know where it's going. Um, it's not that we have lower standards if you're a smaller museum. Eh, you don't have to worry about environmental controls. It's just sort of how do we achieve that given the resources we have and still be responsible and not think that you're um, being negligent. Um, so I, I don't know if anyone else has sort of noticed that, but it's an observation. I, I agree with that 100%. Oh, 100%. Okay. I think it very much, and I think many people have demonstrated that in this room today in talking about what their particular needs are, what you know your organization is working towards, um, you know, maybe where we know we have other things that are, are needs for us to get to that next level. So I think it is very individualized, and I think that's, that's good management. That's yeah. How to figure out what that is is the tricky part. Your observation? Um, well, I was wondering if anyone So yeah. So the question is about: Do you ask board members to make pledges? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Does everyone, everyone do? Who mm -hmm. does pledges? A few of you. Okay. You do have to sign the pledge, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. I've seen a lot of organizations. Have, uh, as part of their budgeting process each year, have the line have a line item called board gifts, and that's the ag an aggregate number about how much we expect to get. And it's obviously clearly based on what we got last year, but we don't know, you know, if we have three new trustees that have come on this year, you know, if we can incrementally um, grow that. And then when I do a strategic plan for uh, for organizations, one of the things we include is a five year you know, pretty short, like you would have in, a, in an annual uh, report kind of thing, you know, sort of major line items and particularly more about the revenue than the expenses. But, you know, asking about board gifts and seeing gradual increase over time. But I mean, I, I, I encourage people to do, to, to not pick a ridiculous goal, uh, you know, because that, like, that, that's going to be nobody, no, nobody's going to be uh, well served by that. But if there's like an incremental increase over the course of five years of 10% or 15%, or if you're really actively looking uh, to improve the uh, board gifts, then you know you're making that an aggressive. Uh, you know, maybe that's a 20% increase over over five years. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, we're coming up to the end of our session, so I wanted to let you know about a couple resources. We're going to be around in case you want to ask questions. There's a break after between the sessions this morning. Uh, we have the book, obviously. Um, we have flyers here. If you want to get a copy of the book, it's 30% off. And each of uh, our speakers today have contributed a chapter to that. Um, if you don't grab a flyer, there's a code you can grab off of here, uh, RFL and F30. I don't know what the code means. Um, <laughs> and you can get a discount off of that. And then also, we've provided on the app uh, a, a, a handout with all kinds of resources, contact information for the panelists, as well as a bibliography of a variety of resources that we found handy 
over um, the years. So that's all available for you for free. So again, thank you very much for coming. Um, enjoy the rest of the conference. And uh, we'll see you, I hope, next year in Las Vegas. So if you have ideas for sessions, um, please think about them. Proposals are due December 9. So if you have suggestions for that, um, they'd love to hear from you. Again, thank you very much. Thank you all. Hi. Uh, we have a flyer. So the, the Roman Littlefield um, sold out here at the conference. So yeah, I'm very happy. Um, but you can still get the discount and have it shipped to you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The codes on there. Yeah, yeah. You're very welcome. Oh yeah, you're Vam. Yeah, sure. Oh, the one we did at Barton House? Oh, that's great. Oh, you're one of the Raiders. Yeah. Oh, yeah, thanks. Oh, great. Yeah, so this is kind of more than the workshop because we can't cover everything. Which, which side are you at again? You're right by the mall, shopping mall. I've been there actually. Yeah, it's a Jewish site. Yeah. Okay. Highly unusual. There aren't very many of them. Yes.